Aloha. Welcome back to season two of the Aravinda show focused on conscious entrepreneurs with me, Andrew Crusoe, your host. For today's interview, I had a chance to talk with writer and producer Zoe Eisenberg. Zoe's work has appeared in the Huffington Post, Shape Magazine, exojane.com, Thought Catalog, veganmainstream.com, and she even co-wrote a fantastic vegan cookbook and relationship manifesto with celebrity chef Allende Howell. In this interview, we get to hear the story behind her move from the East Coast to the Big Island of Hawaii and how it led to her working on Aloha from Lava Land, an incredible documentary all about when a lava flow threatened to cut off an entire community on the Big Island from the rest of the world. Zoe has quite a story to share, and I think you're going to love it. Enjoy. Zoe, thank you so much for taking some time to join me in an interview today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Trying to remember the first time that I saw your work. I think the first time I was really exposed to it was Aloha from Lava Land, which you, you just created this incredible documentary about the lava flow. But what I, I like to start with is this very open-ended question, which is really fun. What brought you to Hawaii? Oh, that's a nice, easy one for me. Uh, <laughs> the answer is my mother. She lives out on the big island. Mm-hmm. And I, before that, uh, my grandparents lived on Oahu. So I've actually been visiting Hawaii since I was about seven years old. So that's like over 25 years. Yeah. And yeah, so I've kind of fell in love with the islands, um, visiting. And then when I specifically, when I came to visit her in Lower Puna, I fell in love with this place and could see myself living there. Which is where you are now, right? Which is where I am now. And it does take a very specific kind of person to not enjoy visit, (laughs) not enjoy visiting Puna. I think everyone, everyone can enjoy visiting, but to enjoy living here, it takes a certain type. Having lived there for a year and a half, a few years ago, and am going back, I can definitely agree with that. It's a very special kind of place. Um, I've called it like the last Wild West in some ways. And Definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. so, you feel so close to the land. Uh-huh. So the first time you went to Hawaii, so you were a kid, and what a, what a great opportunity. Do you remember, and this is a, a kind of a, a bonus thing I like to ask because it's really fun, is what, do you remember what it felt like the first time you landed on one of the islands? Yeah, the air. And I still feel this mm-hmm. every time I leave the island about twice a year to visit my family on the East Coast and travel around and, and get some city culture. And every time I come mm-hmm. back, um, I still have that same feeling and remember <laughs> what it was like to be a kid walking off the plane and you just walk into this kind of balmy, humid air that it's it's like you can like hug it. It's so <laughs> you can feel it. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I love asking that because everybody says pretty much it it just it just goes to show it people say say very similar things mm-hmm. and it's the air it's it's balmy it hugs you and I also feel like it's kind of charged in a way it it has right. a different energy to it and also we did not plan the- this in advance by the way <laughs> <laughs> but but most of the airports in Hawaii are open air airports mm-hmm. and I think that has a huge thing to do with that you're not work walking into this like forced cold recycled air you're walking into just like what it feels like outside so that that makes it different Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah especially like the first time i landed i landed in kona 
which is might be my favorite airport in the whole world. And it's just a single landing strip, as you know, and it's all mm-hmm. out. It's all outdoors. And it's just it's a magical, magical place. Yeah, I, I have a particular affinity for the Hilo airport, but I do think it's ruined airports for me because <laughs> that that's what I expect. I can show up like 40 minutes before my flight takes off and be completely fine and it's not stressful at all. So now when I go to like right. LA, LAX or any other airport, yeah. really, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, and LAX is sort of the antithesis of, yeah. of landing right. in Hilo, right? <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, for <laughs> sure. So... Like I said earlier, my first exposure to your work was Aloha from Lava Land, and that was produced by you and your partner's company. You and your partner founded Larkin Pictures, is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. And that film, um, there's four of us who made it, but uh, mm-hmm. half of that half of that quartet is is my partner and I, Phillips. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a, a team a team effort. What I'm curious about is how was Larkin Pictures born? How was your business born? Um, just out of necessity, you know. <laughs> we wanted we wanted to make movies and we needed somewhere to house them. Uh, Larkin is my partner's middle name, so that's oh. that's where that came from. Um, and it it was just kind of like the first thing we thought of, and we were like, sure, great, sounds good, let's go with that. <laughs> it's catchy, and I like the logo. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and the the birds. I like the birds, so. Mm-hmm. Had it been, you're the first filmmaker I'm having the honor to interview. Well, the first one who's made like feature films, I would mm. say that's fair to say. Was that a lifelong dream of yours? How did that come to be? No, it wasn't a lifelong dream of mine. Um, so my partner, it's a lifelong dream of my partners and we've mm-hmm. known each other since we were 15. Oh, wow. He's always wanted to be a filmmaker. It's like one of those, you know, those people that you meet that have kind of bounced all over with their career and that's cool. And then sometimes you meet these like mystical unicorns who like, (laughs) they were like born knowing exactly what they wanted to do and that never changed. And so Mm -hmm. for him, that's all he ever wanted to do. And it was sort of a foundation of our friendship. We would go to the movies together in high school and talk about movies. And then when we started dating, he was working in kind of the more corporate side of uh, film production that wasn't really feeding his creativity. And he Mm. was like, I really want to make movies. And (laughs) I was, you know, I'm a writer. So Mm -hmm. he's like, I need a, I need a screenplay. And I was like, I guess I could, I could make you one of those. And I, (laughs) I actually didn't realize that I was producing our films as well until after we had made our first feature because producing is really just like being super organized and making things happen which I'm a type a Aries so I'm naturally inclined to do that so we were editing our first feature which Uh we shot out on big island it's called thruple and you can find it on amazon prime but I have seen thruple I have been mispronouncing thruple what, you, what is it? Thruple? Thruple? I've been calling it Thruple. I don't know. That's why. okay. Most people pronounce it. But yeah, so we're so we're working on that and on the credits. Actually, we're in post production, and I was like, "Who's our producer?" We didn't really have one, and mm-hmm. he's like, "Yeah, yeah, you're our you're our producer, Zoe. You produce <laughs> you produce this film." Right. So, mm-hmm. Was th- so did that. Th- Thruple. I'm gonna remember. I'm gonna remember that. And yeah. both Thruple and Aloha from Lava Land are both on Amazon Prime Video right now, right? Um, Lava Land is not on Prime, but it is on Amazon Video. Okay. Yep. But but Thruple is on Prime. I, I watched one of them on Prime. Right. Thruple's on Prime. 
Mm-hmm. Thrupple was is a very fascinating, uh, very fascinating film that we should we should get to in a minute. But which one came first? I know you had a production before. I mean, what I love about your films is you're you're really showing off the island and parts of the island that don't make it into film a lot. Mm-hmm. It's it's such a special place. I mean, all the islands are very unique in their own ways and they're all magic. But the Big Island still still feels very rural, and it still feels very local in a way that the other islands maybe don't feel as they feel more touristy in a lot of places. Yeah, definitely. So it's really exciting and really awesome to see that in. In, in an actual film, what what came first in terms of the films? I know you had a, pro, a production before Aloha from Lava Land. Right. We had, Thruple was our first uh, okay. production. Yeah, Thruple was the first thing we made together. Uh, and then we shot a short film, which um, is not publicly posted anywhere, but we, we had that. So we mm-hmm. did Thruple, which is a narrative feature. We shot another also out in Pune called The Bone of a Whale, which is. That's the, the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's a 15-minute short. And then we did Aloha from Lava Land after that. For, for, for those who listening who have not heard of Aloha from Lava Land, please check it out. It is actually in my top three favorite documentaries. Not just Woo! because it's a documentary about a place that I used to live and I'm moving back to, but because it just it's, it's just so fascinating to see the impact of, you know, long story short, how, how about you... <laughs> How about you? How, what was the best way you would summarize Aloha from Lava Land? Yeah, great. Uh, so I like to say that it's a, about a community coming together when a lava flow threatens to take out their only public access road. So it's really about turning to love in the face of trauma, which mm-hmm. I think even if you don't, you know, you've never lived in an area that has a natural disaster like that. Um, I think it's still I think a lot of people can really connect to it even so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you build the, I love how you build the documentary around, in a lot of ways you build it around this interview between Robert Kent and Harry Jim. Yeah, that's the heartbeat of the film for sure. Yeah, and it's this wonderful, very potent interview that has these just so many moments in it that come together. They, there's this old quote you probably heard, like, moments snap together like magnets. Mm, I like that. Your film really feels like that. All these little moments snapping together that the the sum is greater than its parts. Yeah. And Harry Jim is just such a, a joyous human being. Um, and he loves to laugh. And when mm-hmm. he laughs, like everyone around him laughs. <laughs> I, I mean, I've been to hundreds of screenings of our film at this point. Mm-hmm. And every time, he, you know, he'll say things and he'll he'll just laugh and the whole audience will laugh. And it's it's great. It's wonderful. I was really lucky to go to, I actually recently interviewed Harry Jim for this very podcast. Amazing. Yeah. And we had so much fun. I'm not sure which one you and him uh, will probably be the end of this season of the show. Maybe not. We'll see. But it's actually coming together really well because I think these two interviews are going to pair really well. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and you're, uh, you're totally right. I mean, the first time I saw him was a Kalani and he was talking about Hawaiian history, and was, mm-hmm. this guy's a very special soul and a good storyteller too. The interesting thing about Lava Land is when, um, so our executive producer Robert Kent is the narrator of Lava Land. Mm-hmm. He's a, lo- a local photographer, 
um, and, you know, has founded a bunch of nonprofits. He's, he's great. Uh, Mm -hmm. but he approached, he's our neighbor and he approached Phil and I when the lava was first flowing towards the road and was like, Hey, I want to make this documentary. He's never made a documentary before, but he knows that we're filmmakers. So he sort Hmm. of pitched it, he pitched it to us and we were actually right in the middle of post-production with Thrupple. So the idea of of starting something new kind of made us both want to throw up. So, so we <laughs> said no. One? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we actually said no. Um, and, and the reason that we said no was twofold. It was, it was, yeah, we were in the middle of something else that we thought needed our undivided attention. But mm-hmm. also, we were pretty new to Hawaii. And mm. we, weren't, we weren't really sure if, that was, if it was our story to tell. That was something that we were really right. sensitive to two we thought maybe right. maybe somebody else should be telling this story so there mm-hmm. was about a, t- a two-week period between when robert approached us and then when we actually started filming and in those two weeks phillips and i you know did a lot of talking about it and what we really were talking about was the way the media was covering this mm-hmm. event because the media was not portraying it the way that our community was at all they were really focusing on the disaster element they were mm-hmm. really trying to kind of like upplay the like burning down the end of the world, like all of this kind of thing. My favorite headline, I'm pretty sure it was from the LA times, but it said, mm-hmm. um, walk, walk, walk for your lives. Uh, <laughs> I missed of, that headline. Yeah. That's I'll try hilarious. to find it. I'll try to find it. And send you, it to you. So but you're it was, saying mainstream media sensationalized. This? Yes. I'm what? That's I know. So weird. <laughs> so that was kind of like, look, we're like, nobody's really telling the story because our community, while there were definitely people that were scared and upset, they were really mm-hmm. kind of sticking their feet in it and yeah. like, we're ready for this. Yeah. So we, that kind of made us realize perhaps we would want to jump on the project, but also um, we're homeowners. And mm-hmm. we, so we weren't thinking of leaving. This is my home. My family's here. This is yeah. where I am. So even though I'm not native Hawaiian, um, mm-hmm. so, and my connection to this land while I do feel one, you know, is only, right. it's new, it's more, recent. it's more recent, but despite that, we realized that we are part of this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do live here. And so we did, we did feel like we had something to contribute if only to show the side that the media was not getting. I'm really touched that you respected that situation so much that you initially thought this isn't my story to tell. I feel like that's right. the mark of a good storyteller to know the boundaries around that. Thank you. I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How can I ask how long you'd you'd lived on Big Island when yeah. Robert came to? I didn't know the documentary was his idea too. Wow, good on him. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, he's a visionary. That's like his. He has like that Midas touch where he thinks of an idea, <laughs> and then he figures out how to pull the team together to pull it off. Like that's a talent, and he's got it. Yeah, um, that's a big. You talent. know, he delegates wonderfully. Um, I had been on, living on Big Island for about a year and a half at that point. Okay, okay. And I had bought, I think we closed on our home like maybe four months before the lava started flowing. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, not not that much time. I remind, no. I'm reminded of a part in Aloha from Lava Land where Harry Jim's talking about how people come, as you know, and they build yeah. fabulous homes. And yeah. they leave after five years because they get yeah. tired of maintaining the land. Yeah. And I'm I'm just about at the five-year mark now in June. So I'm excited to get over that hump. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. I was actually on the island when the flow started. It was toward the end, right before. I had already planned to move for, it's a long story, but it was so funny to see 
the reaction and yeah, there was a disconnect between how it was being reported and what it felt like there. Like there was, there was fear, but it, it was so slow. The lava, you didn't know what it was going to do. It was a constant yeah. series of unpredictable days. One yeah. day it would go 30 meters. One day it would go a half a meter and you'd be like, oh, right. man, how am I supposed to like plan around this at all? I know. And it, an interesting fusion of all the things that I love is that while the lava was flowing, so we had started some filming and then both Phil and I left Island. I was on my book tour for The Lusty Vegan. which oh, had yes. Been, we should touch on know, that too. Yeah, we totally should. But which had been planned, you know, long, long before. And so I mm. needed to leave. And my good friend, uh, Kristen Lajeunesse, who's the, the, her brand is Will Travel for Vegan Food. She was supposed to house sit for me while she wrote her book called Will Travel for Vegan Food. So that was the plan. And she was out here for, for a certain amount of time. She was going to finish her book. And so then the lava is happening and she's just, you know, she's not from here and she was doing an amazing job kind of keeping her cool, but she doesn't have family here. This isn't her community. So her and I were in constant communication where she'd be like, ah, I did the math and the lava moved five yards yesterday. So that means by next week, it's going to, I was like, Kristen, it's not how it works, but I totally get like yeah. the, you know, and just kind of having to talk to her from afar, you know, she just wanted, she wanted to, to leave. It was scary out yeah. here uh, and it was really uncertain and she doesn't live here. She didn't want to get stuck. So. Well, maybe we should talk about the ramifications of I mean, spoilers, it, it didn't, it didn't end up isolating the town, but I think people could probably right. figure that out, but we should talk about the ramifications and how close it came briefly. Gladly. I mean, if it, if it were to cross, yeah. <laughs> so if it were to have crossed the road, it would have been difficult for people in Lower Puna to get out of Lower Puna. Um, not impossible, but very difficult. The road that like the highway that leads us straight to Hilo and then passed through Kona would have been blocked. They were trying to reopen Chain of Craters Road, which cuts through the national park. And even though they were trying to do it, it really wasn't a good solution because, one, it's been closed from lava damage. Like, I don't even remember how many times, so many times that, mm. you know, they clear the road and then the, the lava comes right forward again. But also it's it's a it would have been a gravel road. So they would have been trying to channel all of this traffic through the national park on a one lane gravel road. Mm -hmm. So it just would have been a mess anyway. So that was our best option and it wasn't even very good. No. So, yeah. And then there's so, the electricity angle to it as well. Yeah. yeah. So they, they were trying, they were trying to protect our power poles with some, you know, really innovative methods. Like uh, they had made this kind of wire and gravel <laughs> like piles over it. We didn't get to really touch on it in the film, although we did show a picture of it, of, you know, kind of trying to protect our power poles. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, that was very interesting to see. I'm glad you have a shot of that in the film because they were trying to shield it. And I and I believe that lava did come near one. Did it, it did, did work. It? It, yeah. it worked, but they it did go around it, but they're not sure if it would have worked like right. consistently. Like if the lava had kept coming, eventually it would have gotten through that barrier. That was kind of a temporary thing. For weeks. Yeah. People yeah. listening might be going, well, it's just lava. Like it's not that wide. Like even it's just 10... 10 feet wide or whatever but the problem is it's lava like we it's 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 2000 degrees <laughs> fahrenheit right yes um which is mm, something celsius and i should translate that but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a million degrees in every measurement it's so dang hot and you can't it, you can't deal with it i mean you'd have to uh it'll just burn everything in its path and it was that was something that i really reappreciated watching the film 
is what an incredible force of nature lava yeah. is. And you have yeah. this amazing set of um, town hall clips of people talking mm -hmm. about redirecting the lava mm -hmm. and why that wasn't going to work. Do you want to touch on that for a second and why, why that would be potentially a bad idea? Well, it's difficult to redirect lava for one. Um, mm -hmm. But in the past, when they have tried it through various me um, measures like building kind of dikes to essentially like channel it in a different direction. Um, it often ends up going somewhere that's more destructive than it would have been if you'd let it go along its natural path. Mm -hmm. So, and also just being culturally sensitive that the, the volcano and the lava for the Hawaiians is a really spiritual presence. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're really not respecting their culture when you try to mess with <laughs> with that yeah, um, which is what definitely. which is what they were talking about at the at the meetings and really it it does show like i think it's the clearest showcase of division between the people that are from this land and the people that live here now you know that's a really good point that issue specifically yeah that yeah. issue specifically yeah yeah, yeah. Because the lava, yeah, the lava is sacred to them. It's alive. It's a part of Pele. We should talk about Pele really briefly. Yeah. The volcano oh. goddess of the island. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like that's like her. That's like her blood right. in a way. Yeah, it's it's her. I mean, it is a man, just like a a person of a manifestation of her. I mean, everything that the lava touches is what Pele touches. So you don't, you know, respect her. <laughs> yeah, she's the goddess of the island. <laughs> yeah, it's her island. She's queen. <laughs> it's a big mm -hmm. deal. Mm -hmm. There's so much great art, and you have a lot of that in the film too, of the murals of Pele and artistic yeah. interpretations of Pele. It's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why so many artists are drawn to this place. I love the metaphor of of destruction and creation happening simultaneously. I think that's really beautiful and inspiring for a lot of people. Hmm. <sighs> breathe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can hear, I can hear birds in the background. That's nice. Uh -huh. That's nice. That's, this will be a first for an interview. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's good. You're, 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 it's good. So you mentioned earlier that you you wrote a vegan recipe book. Mm. Yeah, cookbook, The Lusty Vegan. The Lusty called. Vegan, which I have seen on Amazon. It's gorgeous. Yes, thank yeah. you. Uh, I co-authored that with my friend and creative partner, Ayende Howell, who's an amazing vegan chef. Uh, so it's mm. part cookbook. Yeah, it's part cookbook and the recipes are his and then part manifesto about loving someone whose lifestyle uh, doesn't align with your own. Oh. Yeah. So for vegans that for some, for like dietary vegans, you know, that's one thing it's mm -hmm. can still be difficult to just eat differently than your partner. But mm -hmm. if it's an ethical choice, then it's an entire different game. Mm -hmm. It's an entirely different game completely because it's like, not only does this person not eat like you, which is one thing, but they, they may not have the same worldviews as you. Yeah. Belief systems are big. Yeah, they're big. Yeah. So that's kind of what it's. A, and the book is cheeky and fun and it's structured. We structured it like the chapters follow kind of meals from breakfast to dessert, but they also follow the trajectory of a relationship. Mm. So, mm. you know, we have. Yeah. So like appetizers is like first date, you know, kind of thing. And then we move on through like cohabitation as like a main course. And 
But yeah, so it, it kind of goes through. And then we have like a food for sex chapter, which is all about like eating, you know, the ways that what you eat can impact your body. And mm-hmm. it's really, fun. it's a fun, it's a very unique kind of niche book. Mm-hmm. I think it's a fun one. So why is veganism important to you? Was it something that you grew up around or was it a choice that you made later on? It's a choice that I started to make um, probably around 13, Hmm. but I was a vegetarian for about 10 years before I could fully make that vegan switch because, you know, cheese happens. Mm. And uh, (laughs) That is so funny. That is me too. The cheese was the hardest thing to let go of. That's like the number one Mm because a lot of people like meat was not hard for me to get rid of at all. It was pretty easy, Mm -hmm. but cheese cheese was, I guess, Mm -hmm. kept coming back to it. So it took me a while, but I first stopped eating meat and processed foods in a twofold. So it was really more of a dietary thing. Uh, I started to realize that what I eat impacts um, my moods and Mm -hmm. my energy levels and like pretty much the way that I move through the world. So Mm -hmm. once I started playing with that, I started looking into more about vegetarianism and and that's when like the ethical stuff came in and the environmental stuff and basically everything made sense. Like I was like, oh yeah, why am I not doing this? But it wasn't until college that I was able to fully go vegan. I think it was 2007. That's awesome. I One of the things I love about the Big Island and, and I guess Hawaii in general is you do run into more vegetarians and vegans. Uh-huh. It's like being there... And maybe it's a little bit of both, but it attracts people who are very aware of where their food's coming from because it's such a local kind of place. I mean, you Mm -hmm. know a lot of the people that are growing the food that you're eating, especially with the, in previous interviews, I've talked about like the farmer's markets a little bit. Was, was that one of the factors in moving? I mean, there's a lot of places you, I mean, I, I know your mom was there. Was that something that brought your mom there was a food angle? No, or what brought uh, her there originally? Her ex-partner uh, had a home here, so uh, mm. her relationship brought her here. I'm always grateful for that relationship happening because otherwise I would not be here. So that's sort of how she found Puna in particular. And it's funny when she got together with her partner and they were coming out here to Pahoa and mm-hmm. she was like, he was like, oh, you might not like it. She was like, what are you talking about? I've been visiting Hawaii my entire life. Like my parents <laughs> retired here. Like, what are you talking about? I'm going to love it. And he's like, yeah, but... Pahoa is a little bit different. different. And then she has, yeah, she has a great story about the first day that she was here with him. They went to the bank and the man in front of them in line had a goat on a leash inside the bank. Oh, that's awesome. And she was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I, I often, <laughs> to, return, to return to kind of your question mm-hmm. about the people that are here, I've often asked myself, not so much about veganism, but just about happiness. Like I meet Mm. more truly happy people out here than Mm. anywhere else I've ever been. And I don't know if it's because this place attracts happy people or it creates happy people or some Mm. kind of like fusion (laughs) of the two. But Mm. I just, you know, I have just, I've been able to make deeper, more meaningful friendships out here in the, in the four and a half years I've lived here than the last decade and a half I spent living on the East Coast. I really struggled with my connections out there. Um, And out here, it's been pretty easy. So I think that's really why this place stuck with me was the people Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And the the land. I love the land. I love Mm -hmm. it. It has a definite energy, but the people here are special for sure. And I think just a lot of really conscious people and whether that means it might not mean veganism to everyone, but it 
they're definitely thinking about their place in the world and why they're here and how they impact things. Hmm. Well said, Zoe. Thank you. Well said that. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about the whole picture and how it clicks together really nicely for you because you were already vegan and Mm -hmm. your mom was there and that's a really good place for vegans too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was um, living actually at the time across the street from Ashley and Sean of Nikoko. Um, and <laughs> Nico- Nikoko had not been founded yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was planning to move there, she was like, you're going to be best friends with the, my, my neighbors. They're wow. vegan. They're, they're from New York. And you guys are just going to be best friends. And she was, <laughs> she was saying that to them too. And we, I think we were both, we laughed about it later, kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Because that stuff doesn't normally work out. It's like being set up on a blind date. No. Like it, rarely, it rarely works out. <laughs> But it was like, yeah, no, it it did work out. It fully worked out. They're wonderful. And they were kind of the first real connections. Yeah, they were the first real connections that Phillips and I made out here. And then... No way. Yeah. And then they introduced us to their circle of friends. Um, So immediately we just sort of like walked into this group of amazing, warm, wonderful, conscious people. And I think that's really why we stayed. Wow. I was, yeah, Phil and I were actually, we were actually at their house the first night, their ice cream machine the first ice cream machine that they ever got arrived (laughs) and it was at that point they were just thinking maybe a hobby because ashley's a wonderful cook and she gets on these really great kicks where she's like i'm gonna i'm gonna learn how to make the best cookie ever and she'll spend like three months like perfecting her cookie recipe and then she'll be like okay now i'm gonna learn how to make the best you know home style japanese food ever so it was you know so it was ice cream at that point and so we they did their first batch of ice cream with us there and it, and it was, it was more like whipped cream, you know, it was like right. our first ever, ever try, but we all oh, ate yeah. it and it, yeah, it was great. And, uh, oh my so that God. Was, I like to think about that now when I see how, like how much they've grown and how successful they are. I like to remember that first night of us eating their first batch. So many ideas are competing for my mouth right now. <laughs> I don't like to talk about the show on the show, but people who have listened to the very first episode will really feel resonance with this, especially because we talk about that exact day and I didn't realize that you were there. That's funny. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause it was a gift. The ice cream maker was a gift to them and they didn't even, you know, they were like, Oh, well, this will be fun. We'll, we'll make mm-hmm. some, you know, we'll see what it's like. And it mm-hmm. turned into this massive part of their, their life and it, their, mm-hmm. their food is so delicious and yeah, Ashley's food is just like, I don't, I don't want to, I just want to take pictures of I it. Know. It's just a work of art, everything that she makes. <laughs> I know. And she, and she lives, she lives right, they still live right down the street from us. So every time I see her like Instagramming dinner, I want to be like, can I come over? Like, I'm not doing anything right now. <laughs> I was flying a kite and it, 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 I'm pretty sure it blew over here. Yeah. Can I walk around? Hey, <laughs> something I, smells kind of good. Smells good. Yeah. <laughs> That's but, awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I'm just trying to digest that (laughs) yeah i'll never i'll never forget their first farmer's market that they did uh she came over afterwards and they sold out and she was just like i mean the joy that was just like radiating from her she was just Mm -hmm. so excited because people liked their product and you know you're a creative like you make something and you're like i think this is good but i don't know if anybody else will and to see like pretty immediately that not only was their product outstanding, but that their vision was great. Their everything was on point, and the community was really ready for for it. So that was beautiful to watch. Yeah, I really feel like it struck a chord, much in the way I feel that your film struck a chord, and that you're in tune with 
those values of respecting the land and respecting your body and understanding where your food comes from. All these things are interconnected. Mm -hmm. I think if, I think if you don't understand that out here, you won't, you won't make it out here very long. And we touched Mm -hmm. that on that on the film too, because it Mm -hmm. it is a beautiful place. And a lot of people come here because it's beautiful and they're like, wow, you know, the land is really cheap here and it's gorgeous. And like, I can get oceanfront property, Mm -hmm. but then they realize like, wow, we're really secluded. It's difficult to live here. We, (laughs) We're on the edge of disaster, you know, <laughs> technically speaking. Uh, Lava, you and, got occasional hurricanes. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and if you're the type of person that doesn't want to eat locally grown food, then, then your food's really expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, so the people that aren't down with that kind of thing, they, they leave. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that makes Pune specifically in such a unique district in the whole state. It's mm-hmm. it's just its own world, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just its own world. And circling back to Aloha from Lava Land, I love showing it in Pune because you know, we made the, we made the film for these people, so I love showing it here. Yeah, but I yeah. also I also love showing it outside of Pune because I think it's really interesting to see the reactions of people that have never visited here or or have never even heard of it and the questions that they ask. We always get in all of our screenings on the mainland, or mm. uh, we we showed in. Paris last year that was really fun but they always ask yeah they always ask two questions thank you they ask uh so do people really believe there's a goddess in the volcano that's like number one (laughs) that's a fair I think it's from from mainland culture I think that's a fair question yeah and then they ask uh where the science is because the film spoiler alert we don't interview any scientists um and that yeah. That was, you know, when we started doing our interviews, we kind of let them guide where the story was going. Um, and no one was talking about the science of lava. And I do think that that's important. And like at yeah. some of our screenings, at some of our screenings, we've had some of the USGS scientists there with us to do Q&As. And that's always been really wonderful. Oh, excellent. But they're not in the film because that's not what the people were talking about. So it's ended up not being the story we were telling at all is like right. the science of lava and why this is happening and how it's happening and that kind of thing is not is missing from the film completely i have a totally different bone to pick with you about the film there's only one thing i would have changed (laughs) okay i'm ready (laughs) i know that i know this feeling you're feeling because my books get ripped apart in editing all the time as you felt Uh as you felt no it's kind of a a tongue-in-cheek criticism but i wish you've got some beautiful shots of sean and ashley getting local ingredients for their gelato. Uh-huh. And I wish you could have had a little bit more in, in there because <laughs> that process of getting, they're just these gorgeous shots of them out. And, and I, the only thing I would have changed was that if you could have introduced them, you know. Well, we actually didn't shoot any of that footage for the film. I, I'm actually really? having a hard... I'm pretty sure we shot that footage for a promo that, yeah, for a Kickstarter promo that they did that then turned into a GoFundMe for them. But yeah, we shot that footage of them picking and then making the ice cream for something completely different. So somewhere out there is a beautiful video that is more full length, focused on them picking fruit, turning it into ice cream and serving it out. Uh, And the foot, yeah, and the footage was just so beautiful that when we were, we were doing our part about sustainability, Phillips used it because and so we do like kind of a a micro version of when we talk about sustainability of watching them pick the fruit turning the ice cream and then serving it so it is like a micro 
version, but we didn't do any interviews with them for it, which is why they don't have like, you know, Nikoko or like some of our other more like what we call our experts. Right, right. I don't know how I missed that video. Yeah, I loved that. I love that part of it because you're showing the local food growing side. And I'm really glad you put that in the film, though, because it really complements and sort of helps round it right. out. Yeah. And we do give them a little shout out in, in the credits. But yeah, they're not their name is not like over the footage or anything. Yeah, that's the only thing I would change. But I totally understand why, <laughs> why it came together that way. Yeah. So you said that you've been vegan for for a while now and you're vegetarian for 10 years, which is we have a very similar story with that. I was a veg vegetarian for 11 years before I went vegan. And it was, again, the cheese. So now that you've been there for four and a half years, has sustainability and eating local changed the uh, your beliefs around that? Has, has it? How has that experience been living there and really focusing on more local things? Um, it's easier to eat locally out here. Back when I lived on the East Coast, I liked the idea of eating local, but that usually just translated to summertime. Yeah. I would, you know, get a, a food co-op box subscription or shop at the farmer's market. And that was pretty much it. So mm -hmm. it's nice to live someplace where I can um, get local produce year round. And that's because we have, you know, pretty much a year round growing season because of our <laughs> beautiful weather. Mm -hmm. um, what the, you know what? It's interesting. The only the only thing that's changed for me living out here is that I now eat honey and I didn't used to eat honey. Oh, yeah. Which is most vegans don't eat honey, and mm -hmm. I and I was one of them, and I mm -hmm. uh, because yes, it's an animal product, but also the honey industry is is not. I was gonna swear. I don't know if I can swear on here. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, is this is a clean podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hmm. The the honey industry is <laughs> is not animal friendly. Let's just say that. Um, and so I didn't want to support it, but my mom's a beekeeper, and so. Oh, no way. Uh, yeah. So after living out here for a couple years and seeing the way that she treats her bees and how happy they are and how integral they are into mm -hmm. in like just into the ecosystem here, then now I do eat oh, yeah. honey, most mostly in, in things. But uh, yeah, I'm the same way, Zoe. I, I eat honey. I, I feel like there are ethical ways to do that. And I don't think it's a, it is a moral, not a moral, well, it can be it, for some people, it can be a moral or, or a vegan gray area. Yeah. It, for me, it wasn't a gray cause I knew that like taking the honey from the bees and if you do it in a way that kind of follows more natural um, beekeeping mm -hmm. practices does not hurt, hurt the bees at all. And it actually no. helps, it helps them, mm -hmm. but it's just that, you know, money changes everything. So our, yeah. our honey industry as a whole is, is just as bad as the dairy industry in the way that we treat the bees and we don't honor their natural system and we don't treat their, their queens right. And that's why they're disappearing everywhere. Mm -hmm. if, if anyone who hasn't seen uh, the vanishing of the bees, that is an amazing documentary. It's, it's older. The vanishing of the bees. Yeah. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that. I want to see it. I'm familiar with the colony collapse disorder and yes, some of the right. scary things, especially a few years ago that were going on, but so it's on that. And when I was a vegan and I didn't eat honey and people would ask me, you know, they do it. Well, honey, it doesn't hurt the bees. And I never really had a good answer other than like, well, it comes from an animal and I don't eat things that come from an animal. Right. Um, but it wasn't until I watched that documentary that I kind of had a more fully formed opinion on why I didn't want to participate in that. Uh, so I would suggest it to, you know, anyone, even if you're not vegan, to give that a watch. It's, it's really great and very edifying. Well, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Um, yeah. which, which are available 
for every episode. Right. So many like little things because I want it to be polished and I want it be, to be lovely and I want to listen to it five years from now and still really enjoy it. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. I do. Ha- I did have one of all the interviews I've done. They've almost all gone really well, but I did have one for ABC on, on 2020 that the, the host asked me a lot of questions about. It was about pheromones. That's what we were talking about. And I gave him all this information that I had on pheromones. And then he he re-recorded himself just verbatim saying all the things that I had told him and cut my bit out. So he, that, that made me real mad. That's pretty yeah. hilarious. It was so, it was not, I was really pissed when I saw it. That's terrible. It was really terrible. Like it was word by word. He just re-recorded all the stuff that I said and cut that part out. So I didn't get to sound smart, but he got to sound real smart. I'm not going to swear in this show. I think I have a clean tag on iTunes, but what a flipping jerk. He was, he was a jerk. (laughs) Flipping ABC. This is why new media is taking over. Yeah. (laughs) ABC owned by Disney. Um, Mm -hmm. so... Do you have any advice for our listeners on how to be more sustainable, even if they're, you know, in in the middle of the city, which most of the population of Earth are in urban environments now? Uh, Yeah, I I think connect with your community. I think that's the first the first thing to do. And that we talk about that a lot in Aloha from La Land, especially Mm -hmm. with our sustainability um, expert Scott, who's wonderful, talks about how sustainability really is community. That's that's mm-hmm. what it is. Mm-hmm. So if you can get involved with your local community, I think that you'll be able to lead a more sustainable life. And it doesn't even need to. I don't know. I don't even feel like it just needs to be where your food comes from, but like right. where you get your your emotional, your human connection to have it from the people around actually around you is in this the digital age is kind of a novel concept. Yeah. You're giving me a perfect segue to something else I was curious about. You're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) The question is, do you use social media daily? Like what is your interaction with, with, with the screen, right? Because we're so involved. We're so enmeshed. Even in Pune, people still use social media. Yeah. You know, um, for me, I am on social media. I have a Twitter account. I'm on Facebook and I have an Instagram account. Mm-hmm. Instagram, I use the most because if you use it right, I think it can be the most informative. I learn a lot from Instagram. Mm-hmm. But uh, most seems like there's I, less noise on Instagram, too, in a lot of ways. Exactly. And you don't have to, I like the as a visual storyteller. I like that visual format a lot. But I do think, you know, social media can, especially Instagram can be harmful if you're comparing yourself to the images that you're seeing. So I, mm-hmm. I like to do transparency posts a couple times a year where I post, cause most of what I post on Instagram is like, here's the beautiful jungle I live in. Like here, here's what I'm eating. Here's my cute dog. But you know, I'm not, I'm not posting photos of what my actual nine to five life is, or actually it's, it's eight to three for me, but it's me staring at my computer screen. So once right. a year I I do like to post either myself or my partner sitting inside at the computer with a beautiful day outside because that's what our reality is. And a lot of people don't right. see that. And they, they just imagine us like outside in the water all the time when there'll be months where I don't get to go to the beach. Right. Because like life happens, you know, no matter where you live. Yes, it does. So, and with Facebook, I, I don't love Facebook, but um, mm-hmm. I haven't found a, I, I have five different business pages that I manage on Facebook. Five, and I have wow. five. Yeah. So I'm on there, you know, every day updating those. And I haven't really found a way 
to not have a personal profile, but still manage business profiles. I don't think that that's really a thing. Yeah. I don't know if they let you do that. Yeah. Not that I've found, but, um, so that's what I, what I do mostly on Facebook is Tricky. manage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So how do you find balance with that? Do you have like a, okay, I'm only going to use, do you try to limit your Instagram time? I, I try to limit it, but you know, sometimes you're like, well, this is really great. And the stories thing is that can suck, yeah. suck time. You gotta be careful with the stories when you're following like 300 people. Right. <laughs> or at, in my, in my case, add like, you know, a zero to that number. I follow a lot of people. So wow. yeah, but I, I, when I work at my computer, I put my phone away. Like I don't have it within arm's reach. So that helps kind of negate Instagram during the work hours, yeah. unless I'm like taking a break and then I'll check yeah. it. Facebook is more distracting when I'm working because it's too easy to open a browser and to look something up and then like 20 minutes go by and you're like, wait, how am I on Facebook? I was just going to use the thesaurus and now, oh, no. you know, <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah. So that happens, but I, I don't know. I'm pretty, I, I think every entrepreneur does it different every, mm-hmm. but I, I block my time, um, Smart. Monday through Friday. And I'm, I try to stay pretty consistent with that. And I have an interesting kind of setup where like what pays my bills is not necessarily what I always consider my actual work. So, Mm. uh, the job I do that pays my bills might only take, you know, X hours a day, but I'm going to continue to sit there for another X hours doing like writing or producing or things that do not pay my bills right now, but are what I really consider kind of like the core work that I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, now you're teasing us in as much as can you, can you say what you, Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm a, I'm an editor. So I, I edit, um, mostly for magazines, but also for, I edit novels and book manuscripts and that kind of thing. So that's, that's what pays my bills. Oh, I didn't know you were primarily doing that. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I already felt honored that you were a beta reader for yeah. my book. <laughs> well, that, and, and, and that's honestly like, I apologize for how slow I am to do that. that that's actually why is because like, so I have like stacks of, I love to read for pleasure, obviously, because I'm yeah. a writer and uh, writers are first readers. So I, I, there are books I'm trying to read for pleasure, but then there's also like books that I'm being paid to, to oh, edit. Oh, totally. Then, yeah. I mean, and yeah. And then like my writer's group too. And I, I, um, I have a writer's group that meets every other week and we are committed to reading each other's work as well. So I love being able to give feedback to people. It's a joy for me, but I also have like stack, stacks oh, of people I'm giving feedback to. I totally understand. I yeah. totally understand. But I was really happy that you accepted to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, because that's coming out later in the year. It's not a huge super rush, but I wanted to thank you publicly for being a beta reader for 10,000 Hours in Paradise. No problem. Volume one of three. My pleasure. <laughs> of three. Dang. Impressive. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it started out as... I don't want to talk about too much about myself because this interview is about you, but yeah, it started out as like a really, really, really big manuscript and I decided to break it up into three because it sort of lent itself to three major things and it makes it makes it easier to edit and deal with. Mm-hmm. And it's also better mm-hmm. for Kindle. It's better to it's better to do a series these days. And for your readers too, like they'll be more likely if they're new readers who aren't familiar with your work, then they'll be more likely to give a book a chance when it's, you know, a couple hundred pages versus like 800 pages, yeah. you know, <laughs> 700 pages. This won't fit in my backpack. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but if you hook them, if you hook them, then they'll be likely to read your volume two and three. So it'll work out anyway. 
Yeah, I should probably warn you in advance. Uh, volume one's a little bit of a cliffhanger. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, that's good if you're trying to, if you're trying to get people to sign up for the next one. And, totally. Yeah. So do you have any advice for people who want to start their own? I mean, I feel like we could do a whole show on how to start a film company, <laughs> but to, oh, start, yeah. to start your own conscious business. I love a- asking this question because I get a very different answer uh, almost every time. Ah, geez. It's a good question. For me, I think creating uh, achievable goals. So it's important to have like a large overall vision and then also kind of trackable, more manageable goals that you can break down. And I'm like I said, I'm a huge fan of scheduling and time blocking. And that goes for goals as well to, sh- to have like some mm-hmm. smaller goals that you can hit that are in alignment with your larger goal. Because if you're trying to start your own business, that can also often feel like really, really huge and mm-hmm. exciting, but also scary. So to kind of break it down, And then also to align yourself with like-minded individuals is invaluable, whether or not you have an official like kind of collaboration or not, um, just people who you trust that will give you constructive criticism, I think is key because we all have those Mm -hmm. people in our lives who love us. And when we go to them with our work or our ideas, they're like, that's great, sweetie. Like, that's (laughs) wonderful. Like, high five. And, and, and that's wonderful to have that kind of support, but, but it, there might not necessarily be giving you any insights that will help you grow. Mm-hmm. So finding your team of people that care about you enough to give you real constructive uh, feedback that is not overly critical, that is all about forward change and growth and to find that core network. And then, of course, give it back to them as yep. well. I yep. think that's, for me, the most important no, that's that's well said. Yeah, you want someone who's sort of like tough love, but yeah, you want you Definitely. want yeah you, you want it to where they care enough to say yeah, chapter thirty is crap, and right? Or it's like this pull, yeah. pulling the book yeah. down. I like the other stuff. Yes, right. Or this is great, this is great, this is great, but this is not working at all. And here mm-hmm. are my ideas because it's also hard when you have someone that's like this isn't working, and you're like okay, well why? And they're like I don't know, it's just not. That's not helpful right. at all. Right. So to have to have someone who because it takes time to give someone like articulated feedback. Like that's that's yeah. not a small it's not a small ask. So to find people that you really trust to give you mm-hmm. that time and that creative energy, mm-hmm. and that you can also give that back to them when they need it, I think that's. That's really important. That's a really good point. It's not a small thing to ask. It's not. It's it's a big it's a big thing. And then you want to be there for them when they want feedback. And then you have this virtuous cycle. Right. Yes, very much so. <laughs> but those are beautiful and those are the best relationships and I've been lucky to have a lot of them uh, with my co-writer of The Lusty Vegan, Ayinde, he's a good friend of mine. And, and we, even though we don't write together much anymore, we still like spitball ideas off each other all the time because there is that trust where we know the other person will give us that real talk when we need it. And then also my partner and I, I mean, we could do a whole talk on that about balancing work and oh, love. God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Season and three. We, Season three. Yeah. Because we both, <laughs> we both also work from home and we live in what is a normal sized home in Pune, but everywhere mm-hmm. else in the world is, is considered a tiny home. So we right. live and work in this like small space and somehow have managed not to break up or murder each other. So <clears throat> just minor injuries, I'm sure. Wait, so yeah. you... <laughs> emotional injuries (laughs) sorry dark humor comes out of me sometimes it just well so you both let me get this straight you both work from home Mm -hmm. you work from the same home Mm -hmm. and you collaborate on projects Uh 
Oh boy. Yes. Oh boy. Oh yes. boy. Oh boy. Oh, for, oh boy. We have a nice sign off. We like to do when like, you know, if we've been hanging out and we're both getting back to work, he's like, mm-hmm. right, I'm going to go, I'm going to make some stuff. Nobody ever wants to watch. And I'll be like, great. I'm going to go write some stuff. Nobody else ever wants to read. And we have like a nice little like dark humor high uh-huh. five because, but that's how it feels as a, you know, you must know. Oh my God. Yes. Go yeah. on. <laughs> when, when you're just like pouring all of your life into mm-hmm. something and you're like, does this even, is this even valuable to anyone ever? Mm. Like, does anybody care about this at all? Oh, so we should talk about this more when I get there. Just the, uh, the whole idea of like writing to market and trying to figure out like where your passion overlaps with what people want. Yeah. And that's really I, I, tricky yeah. with, with, with writing yes. fiction or not. Yes, for sure. I like to remind myself to write for myself. And if I, if it's something that I would like to read, then there are other people out there who would like to read it. Well, well, does that mean it would be like a New York Times bestseller? Probably not. Right. But th- th- there is a circle somewhere who might find value in it if I do. So. Yeah. So that, that's the way you think about it. Yeah. When I get really when I get stressed about that or if I start to think about marketability or, or anything like that, then I like, yeah, it is important to know your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm learning that more and more, especially with filmmaking, more mm-hmm. so than with with my fiction but hmm. uh yeah it's important to know your audience but more so why, why more so with with film <sighs> let me think about that i i guess because not that novel writing is not a business obviously it is but filmmaking is such a business that like it, it's a big business a lot of people involved yeah and i and i've heard too like filmmaking is one of the only industries where people are creating products with no idea how to sell them because a lot of, like, a lot of filmmakers are creatives, like I am, and perhaps sure. not, we don't have natural, not not everyone, but perhaps don't have business sense or don't care about marketing, and they're like, whatever, I'll get someone else to do that for me. Mm-hmm. But as the film industry shifts, just like as the, the um, publishing industry shifts, a lot mm-hmm. of that weight is falling on the creative. Not only do I now have to create my own thing, but I have to figure out how to get people to see it, because otherwise, what am I doing it for? Like, it's not, right. otherwise, it's just like, excuse me for saying like masturbatory it's not you know are you making something to provide value or are you making something to be like oh i made that good job you know so so i really enjoy i'm really enjoying this interview good i'm glad (laughs) no it's you have a point yeah you have a very good point yeah so I'm, i'm learning how to get better at that and how to understand who my audience might be and how to reach them it's it's really it's really a a tricky pickle sometimes because you have the story inside you and you want to articulate it and you know long story short i wrote my first book and i didn't realize i was writing ya until it was done Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know but that was just a story that was in my heart at the time and i was like oh yeah teenagers could probably get a lot out of this i'm still really proud of it but it's that funny thing of you almost have to finish the thing and then look back and then go okay especially with the first thing but it is better to to go in with the audience in mind if you can do it. And sometimes and fiction is so personal too. When you're writing fiction, you really it's a way to process things emotionally too. For sure. For sure. Like I have I'm working on my third novel right now and none of my awesome. novels have yeah, it's great, but none of them have been published. Um and I don't regret writing any of them, even if they mm-hmm. never leave my hard drive, because like you said, they were a they helped me, they helped shepherd me through something. There was something that I needed to work out. So it's... Have you considered going independent with those? Um, 
I haven't because not that I wouldn't ever, but mm -hmm. I haven't because we've we've pushed a lot of our films independently, like Aloha from Lava Land, and I know mm -hmm. how much work how much work it takes. Yeah, and I I don't necessarily want to to have to promote myself as hard as I would have to. Some people are really yeah. good at it. I'm not. I'm not, it's not, I don't love doing that. I don't love yeah. promoting my, my own work. And I know that to do it well, it really is a full-time job. I have friends that do it really well. You seem to be doing it really well. Like, oh, I, thank you. Yeah. But, but it's not a skill set of mine. Um, so at least with our films, like, I feel like I'm promoting something that is its own like thing. Like it's right. a, a film has a life of its own that I, I feel a little bit more comfortable promoting than like, read my novel. Here's my feelings. And that's just me. <laughs> personally not you know other people who do it yeah totally totally it's such Good a <laughs> personal personal decision mm -hmm. for all this stuff that makes uh -huh. a lot of that makes a lot of sense i'm curious uh before we go look you got you got a few minutes i'm curious are the three novels you've written are they part of a series or are they all different characters different places nope they're all different they're all different characters different places the first one it's funny you mentioned ya because the first novel that i wrote it had a young protagonist. The story starts when she's 12. And so when I turned it over, my agent was like, oh, this is YA. And I was like, no, it's not YA. It just has a young character. And so she actually tried to sell it as YA. Mm. And we got some really wonderful rejection letters. That mm. is, a, it is, it is possible to have a wonderful rejection letter. Oh yeah, no, definitely. People frame those sometimes. Yeah. And they were basically like, the best ones were like, look, this is like great, but it's not YA. It has, it's a story about a young protagonist, but mm -hmm. it's not YA. And it, it's because it was really dark and really sexual and the, the content. And that really, again, comes down to marketing. Could a 13 year old pick that book up and get something from it? Definitely. And I, mm -hmm. and I hope that they do. Mm -hmm. Would I feel comfortable marketing that book to a 13 year old? Not <laughs> at all. Yeah. Because I was reading, I was reading those books when I was that age, like mm -hmm. you know, books that had more mature content, but yeah. they weren't being marketed to me. I was just finding them and then holing away in my bedroom and reading them. You're so, just a smart kid, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. So <laughs> yeah, so it, for there, it all comes down to yeah, just marketing. Reading Moby mm -hmm. Dick at, right. at twelve. <laughs> that's that's not exactly what I mean, but <laughs> <laughs> the whale is yeah. a metaphor. Uh huh. <laughs> So go on, I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a it's a metaphor for God, right? I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I haven't, right. I haven't read all of it. <laughs> it's, it's not paced the best. Well, it's a different. People had more time than a different time. It's true. Yeah, it's true. It's, true. it's like Robinson Crusoe. That book. Uh -huh. I'm gonna I'm gonna finish yeah. that book someday. Or like um I I love I love Anna Karenina. I love that book. But yeah, it's like it's so huge. <laughs> Two thousand pages or something. Yeah, something like that. Well, I know that you're in a bit of a time crunch, so we'll start to wrap up. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for for joining me. I was curious, to, just to wrap up, out of everything you've created, and I can guess, but I'm curious your, your thoughts. There's probably multiple things. I, I want to hear more about these novels someday. Um, but out, out of everything you've created, what are you most proud of up to this point? And maybe a part B to that would be, is there something you're making right now that you're really excited about? Which I think there is. There, I mean, yes, I am working, I'm finishing up my fourth film. Um, and another narrative feature sat on Big Island. It's called Stoke. Uh, it's, it's I'm stoked. Great, I think. Yeah, you're stoked for Stoke. That's, yeah, great. But uh, I think the novels are probably what I'm... Yeah. Has that yeah. joke been made too many times? <laughs> yes. You're stoked for Stoke. Great. Shut up, Andrew. 
heard the joke already it's something that phillips and i say all the time when we're not (laughs) when we're not actually stoked for stoke when we're trying to be stoked for stoke because uh but i don't know i think any creative process there's like it's like a relationship where you know you have times where it's really exciting and really Mm. beautiful and and everything is just the best ever and then there's other times where you're like what am i doing and what have i done and this is awful and then you swing back the other way so I think I'm proud of all my projects, but I think that the novels that I'm, I write have the most of my heart because mm. they're the only projects that I'm not really collaborating on. Yeah. All the other things that I'm doing have been team efforts. And these, I have people that read them and give me feedback, but these are, these are my babies alone. So I think mm. that, that they're like, I'm most intimately attached to them. So, mm. yeah, it's so personal. Of writing it really is. and the, the characters are like parts of your personality at yeah. the end of the day like you can't write anything that isn't a part of you i know really. that's why like they say and i've heard a whole bunch of people say it how you know writers are schizophrenics because we, we you know every day we just separate our mind into like a million different people and then still manage to somehow like move through the world as ourselves so all of us yeah. maybe a little yeah. a little bit you know, mentally on the fringe in the best kind of way. We're all mad yeah. here. Yes, <clears throat> To exactly. quote the Cheshire Cat. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so thank you for that. I, I want to hear more about these, but I'm very intrigued by your well, no- maybe novels. Hope, hopefully one day one will be published and then we can do a podcast on that. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. Yeah. So uh, my last question would be like, yeah, how do you see conscious business evolving and changing over the years into the future? I, I do feel like a big island is at the forefront of certain things like the local and, and being able to be off the grid and be self-sustaining. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I mean, there's so many different ways you could tackle that question. One thing that I've been noticing over the last mm, five years is that, uh, you can't really lie to the consumer anymore. Hmm. Like people still do it, but it's, it's, they find out a lot faster. So like Hmm. advertising is changing. Um, even like the film industry is changing where you have things like, uh, you know, rotten tomatoes has really changed the whole like film review process because people Hmm. know right away whether something's good or not. And the critics can give it as many like bought glowing reviews as they want but at the end of the day like if it's not good people are going to say it's not good and other people are going to read that other people said it's not good and so you 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 really have to make a product that you as a person feel comfortable standing behind fully because there's less of that buffer between you and your your audience you and your market you know it's true it's really true with books too yeah yeah so i think that that it's a different kind of like conscious behavior where it's like, can I hold myself accountable for what I'm creating? Do I feel good about what I'm making? Do I feel good about like what I'm putting out into the world? Do I feel good about asking people to spend their time and their money on this? So mm-hmm. I think that's something every selling artist should ask themselves. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything that you'd like to point people to or promote before we yeah, say uh, aloha? Yeah, people can find um, my films that we've mentioned, both Thruple and Aloha from Lava Land. They're both available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And so is my book, The Lusty Vegan. So, And they all have their own Facebook pages. You can search them as well. Like, Thruple, like, like. Aloha. Yeah, like, like, like. like Give like, me like. all the likes. 
Validate me. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had had more time to talk about Thruple. Because well, we could, yeah, we could talk about it another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that movie is a trip, and I really Thank enjoyed you. it. It is a trip. I, I, it's so unique, and so ah, uh, it's 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 so hard to describe sometimes. <laughs> I know that we're uh, Phillips and I are finding a balance because I love this about our work, but it's also can be frustrating where. There, it's not like anything else. The same with Stoke. Mm -hmm. I can't be like, oh, it's like this movie and that movie had a baby. Like, it's just not like anything else, which I think is great. It makes it means they're original and they're unique. But it also means that, you know, people want to know they want it. That's that's why, like, the vegan industry names things like chicken in quotes. And like, because they <laughs> they're trying to to tell to give people an idea of what it would be like so that they hopefully buy in. And, and hmm. I can't do that. So it's interesting yeah. parallel, Zoe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, people should definitely check out your work, seriously, and especially Aloha from Lava Land. Like that, that movie has a soul. It's amazing how much you got into that film, and the film's like what, sixty minutes or something like that. Not even fifty-five. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. fifty-five, and there's so much yeah. in there, and it's it's a piece of history, and it, that's yeah. one of the few times that that's happened or almost happened, and you mm -hmm. feel like you're there, and it made me feel like I was back in Pune just watching it. It's why oh, I love. Thanks, Andrew. Oh, it's on it's on Hawaiian Airlines now. That's really exciting. Oh yeah, I saw that. So when you take mm -hmm. your flight to the Big Island yeah. or to any of the you islands, watch you can watch yeah. it on the way there. And uh -huh. it's it's a under an hour, so you'll have plenty of time to do everything else you need to do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Yeah, thank you so much, Zoe. This has been a fantastic interview. Mm, mahalo Nui to Zoe for sharing her insights and giving us a glimpse into the many aspects of her creativity. We'll definitely be seeing more of that from her in the future. And I can't help but feel that this was the perfect interview to close season two with, especially considering that we came back around to the first day Sean and Ashley of Nakoko made ice cream. I had no idea that Zoe had been there. Such a small world on Hawaii. And even though this is the last episode of season two, I suspect that there are episodes of Arvin to show that you haven't heard yet, and iTunes is the easiest way to find them. Just search for A-R-A-V-I-N-D-A show, and if you use Instagram, I'm Hello Crusoe on there, Hello, C-R-U-S-O-E, and I post samples of interviews when they come out, and I'll also be posting glimpses of my upcoming return to Hawaii, more about that in a minute. Also, be sure to check out Zoe's site at zoeeisenberg.com. That's Z-O-E-E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G.com to learn more about her writings and her other films and her upcoming film, Stoke. Of course, this will all be in the show notes for this episode over at Mythly. That's M-Y-T-H dot L-I. Go there and click on Arvinda Show, really easy to find, to find show notes and all the great interviews, as well as free samples of my own books, including my upcoming book, You Knew This Was Coming, 10,000 Hours in Paradise, a true story about my life-changing adventures on the island of Hawaii. I plan to launch that on the big island later this year. In fact, as of this recording, I fly back to the island in just a few weeks. I'm so glad, actually, that the final leg of my flight is with Hawaiian Airlines, which will be the perfect opportunity to see Aloha from Lava Land a fourth time. Or is it a fifth time now? I can't keep track. But this time I'll be in the air, just like Zoe and I talked about. Especially now that as of mid-2018, the lava is flowing again and thousands of people are being displaced from their homes. 
as eruptions break out and flow through Leilani Estates. Thankfully, Zoe, Harry, Megan, Rox, Drew, Ashley, and Sean are all okay. I checked on them. But I ask that if you're listening to this, please send a prayer or positive intention for the safety of the residents of the southeastern part of the Big Island. There have also been hundreds, literally hundreds of small earthquakes in the last week, and there was even a 6.9, and that's, that's pretty big. People feel that very far away. So far, no one has died, thank goodness. Actually, Aloha from Lava Land is the perfect film to watch if you want to learn more about how lava flows bring the community together in astounding ways. And as of this podcast, you can rent that film on Amazon Prime for two bucks and 99 cents. Not bad, $2.99. <sighs> well, that brings us to the end of season two. Thank you so much for joining me on this Conscious Entrepreneur series. I learned so very much. I had a lot of fun, and I hope you did too. You know, if this show gets enough reviews on the iTunes store, I may even be able to start season three by the autumn of this year. But that'll only happen, honestly, if I hear from you. Just like in book publishing, this podcast lives or dies by shares and you writing reviews on iTunes. So anything you can do, I greatly appreciate. Once again, I'm Andrew Crusoe. Mahalo Nui Loa for listening. And I'll see you later, probably when you least expect it. But first, I'm moving back to the most remote population center on Earth, Hawaii, specifically the Big Island of Hawaii. And already, so many things have come together, and I can't wait to start the next chapter. There's so much beauty and magic in store in the future, and I can't wait to share it with you via my website and the other usual channels, <coughs> Instagram. And I just got a waterproof HD camera, so... I'll be shooting some stunning underwater photos and video in the coming months. I look forward to seeing you on the island and around the web. Aloha.